Hello, happy hunters. We're your host, Molly. And Jonathan. Today we have the most special guest, my mother, Esther Park. My mom attributes meditation to changing her brain and creating opportunities for happiness through gratitude and positive self-talk. She fills her life with what brings her the most joy, dancing, work, family, and friends. Once I started saying that my life was full as opposed to busy, it really helped me kind of slow down and enjoy the fullness of all of this stuff. We just want to take a moment to tell you how much we love one of our sponsors, Nature's Head Composting Toilet. When we renovated the bathroom in the camper, we got rid of our old flush toilet and made the switch to a composting one and could not be happier. I did have some reservations at first, but Nature's Head has thought of everything. With minimal parts and easy assembly, installation was super simple, and when it comes to emptying, it is a breeze. Plus, there is no odor. With all the time we spend outside, we know that each small action makes a big difference. So my favorite part of using a composting toilet is how it's waterless. Did you know that the average toilet uses three and a half gallons of water per flush? Just think of how many gallons a day that is. Our composting toilet helps us conserve water and it's so easy to use. We actually purchased our toilet months before Nature's Head Composting Toilet was even a sponsor. For more information, go to natureshead.net. That's natureshead.net to get yours today. Today's interview is with Esther Park, who knows that we all make mistakes and that happiness comes from what we do with those mistakes. Esther has a long relationship with meditation that she believes has changed her life and given her access to happiness and contentment. She practices gratitude daily and believes our language is more powerful than we realize. Hi, Esther. Welcome to Happy Hunters. Hi, Jonathan. So just for everyone that's listening, um, you are my mother-in-law, and I am completely biased as to how awesome you are. Thank you. I have always admired your commitment to daily meditation and how you're able to find joy in so many aspects of your life. You keep your cup full and have so much wisdom to share. I'm really happy that you are a part of today's show. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, boy, that that sounds like a big... uh big thing to fill. Oh, you're great. So in 1964, you met your best friend and you two are still best friends today. She's the one that introduced you to the SRF meditation many years ago, which you said had the greatest impact on your happiness. Learning about being here now, taking responsibility for your actions and letting go of thoughts that keep you stuck on things that you can't change. What is SRF meditation and what does being here now look like for you today? Okay, well, um, SRF stands for Self-Realization Fellowship. It's an international spiritual organization or fellowship and it was founded by um, Guru Paramahansa Yogananda in 1920. Um, SRF kind of teaches meditation but it's a little different because it's scientific technique meditation and 
I say it's different because the other meditations that I know about are more like you have a mantra and there's some breathing with it. SRF meditation is more devotional. So that's a little different. So the goal with devotional meditation, or at least with SRF meditation, is to find a direct and personal experience with God. And I, I, I hesitate to even say God because people think of, you know, the white man with the long beard sitting on the throne. Right, in, right. So sometimes when I talk to people about it, I just talk about like divine energy or consciousness because yeah. really what, what SRF believes is that we're here to evolve and to try to get closer to this divine consciousness from human consciousness to divine consciousness. So I read, I read Autobiography in 1969 and it's true. My best friend Twinkle was the one who, um, she was in Hawaii at the time and she heard an SRF monk speak, and she was very inspired, read the book, Autobiography of a Yogi, and just felt like that was her path and shared it with me. I read the book and felt really the same because in 1969, think about the year that was. I mean, that was the, maybe it wasn't the- That was the, the summer of official, love. Yeah, it maybe wasn't the official year. I think 1967 was, but yeah. 1969 still, it was, um, it was all about love, um, finding spirituality, living in nature. And when I read um, Autobiography, really it was the first time I felt like I kind of had the answers to all my questions. And one thing that, that really connected with me about it was when I was young, somewhere between age five and 10, I remember going to my grandparents' house. We would go over there on a Sunday. There would be a lot of people, a lot of cousins. And I would retreat into their bedroom by myself. I'd sit on their bed. And I would shut my eyes super tight. And if I and I couldn't do this all the time, but when I could do it, I would be concentrating on the darkness I saw behind my eyes. And I just kept kept them shut until this white light would appear. And it was like a million stars, the brilliance of a million stars. And it just changed that dramatically to white. The feeling that it accompanied, I didn't really know what it was, but it kind of felt like joy or something something I didn't really know, but I liked it. And I would always, whenever I'd go there, I would try to recreate that. Sometimes I was successful, sometimes not, but I loved it. I, when I started meditating, I kind of felt that same joy, but now I could kind of expand it to this feeling of love, divine love, joy, peace. So I just felt like this was, this was the path. This was my path. And I never really diverged from that. I stopped looking. And I had done lots of reading before that. One of the books that affected me a lot was Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. Yes. And reading autobiography, putting this all together, this all made sense. This was really, we're all connected by this consciousness, but we just are not aware of it. We can't be aware of it all the time. But in meditation, I would get this sense, this expansive feeling that we're all connected and that human consciousness is something that we have while we're in this life, but our goal is to try to merge it with the divine consciousness, this energy that keeps the planet spinning or, or however you want to think about it. So that's why I, I say that, that um, finding meditation and finding self-realization fellowship and all my experiences that have happened since that is what I attribute my feeling joy or happiness in, in the world today. I really wish I could get my meditation game to where <laughs> you're at. 
Well, no, not where I'm at. I'm, you know, I, I sometimes say, you know, I've been meditating for 50 years. I should be realized. Why aren't I realized? I'm not. <laughs> but I do remember after 10 years of meditating, pretty regular, I went to a um, presentation by the SRF monks where you could, afterwards, you could talk to them about any personal issues. And I asked them, I said, hey, I've been meditating really regularly for 10 years now. And my thoughts are still all over the place. I, I'm a nervous wreck. And he just looked at me and said, imagine what you'd be like if you didn't meditate. Uh-huh. So, you know. It put things in perspective. It sure did. And I remember that because, yes, my thoughts can go all over the place as well. But when I have a good meditation, it's really good. So SRF meditation helped you take responsibility for your actions and help you make a shift in your happiness. Can you give me an example of that? The shift is, I guess, this idea of being here now, mindfulness of Eastern philosophy and, you know, spending so much time feeling guilty because that was kind of my issue, still is, or worrying about things in the past or thinking about the future and getting anxious about what is going to be. So the meditation has kind of shifted this idea to be here now, which actually is Ram Das is, is the one that coined that phrase. And that, you know, is about being mindful and mindfulness is more about awareness without judgment. So I guess that's been the biggest shift. How do you recognize your role in a situation and where you need to own your actions? For me, it was more like, I kind of always know when I do something wrong, it doesn't feel right doesn't feel congruent with who I am. might take me a while to figure out that I've done something or that I have a role in something or I need to take a responsibility in that because I usually don't feel good. So while I'm trying to figure it out, I kind of work on it. And then once I do, I try to rectify it. I try to own it and, and do what I need to do. It kind of reminds me of a, a children's book that my granddaughter gave me called Wish. And in the book, the protagonist made a really bad mistake. She really was very mean to one of her friends. And um, her benevolent aunt told her, it's not the mistakes we make that defines who we are. It's how we try to fix them. That really just seems so wise to me in this little, you know, third grade book. I think that's really true. So what I try to do is fix it, I guess, or take responsibility, own it. And I can't always assume that the other person or the situation is going to get better, but I've done my part and then I have to you know, move forward. How does getting stuck on thoughts affect your joy and how do you shift your mind space away from those thoughts? I think linguistics is very important. I think the way we talk to ourselves affects how we feel. So I'm a kind of a believer in that. I really do try to shift the way I talk to myself. And that, that usually does help. And also looking at the bigger perspective, because getting stuck is kind of like being in the past or worrying about how someone's going to react in the future. So again, that idea of, about being here now and being mindful helps. Your biggest hardship of your life has been the loss of your husband. You said that recently you watched the TED Talk about moving forward versus moving on, and that the video had been very helpful. In your process, you say that right now you are moving forward. To you, what is the difference between moving on and moving forward? Oh, yeah, I guess it's, it's the same thing. It's semantics, right? It's just 
how I think about moving on is kind of like kind of forgetting the past and, and, and moving on, moving forward. And I don't want to forget the past. I had a wonderful relationship with my husband of 30 years or actually more. After I saw this TED Talk and, and heard her use the difference between moving on and moving forward, I totally, it resonated for me. So for me, moving forward now means taking all the memories, everything, and carrying them with me to move forward, to move on. It has a, a different feel to it, and it's really been extremely helpful to think of it that way. You said that you and your husband, Larry, unequivocally are soulmates. As you said, you two were married for over 30 years, and in those three decades, you had ups and downs. When the downs were at their lowest, how did you not let go of that soulmate feeling? Oh, well, for sure, I let go of that soulmate feeling. Absolutely. When, the, when, <laughs> when things were hard, I mean, you know, nothing is perfect. Right. He was a wonderful husband. He was a great father. He wasn't perfect. It was hard. I'll tell you what helped us the most. Therapy was very helpful in recognizing what we contributed to the relationship. And we both contributed negative stuff that had to be worked out. But we were kind of like a lock and key. What he needed, I could give him. And what I needed, he could give me. And, and I think that made it great. The second thing that made our relationship so wonderful is in the last years of our marriage, of our life together before Larry passed away, was that he was working on the other side of the state. So oh. he <laughs> come home Wednesday for a midweek kind of a thing. Then he'd be home on Friday and leave for work on Monday. So we were always happy to see each other on the weekend. It really did help, I have to say. Wow. It, it's hard. Marriage relationships are really hard. So no, we didn't always have, and I'm sure he felt that way about me. Although, um, after he died, one of his colleagues said to me that they worked side by side for 25 years. And the colleague said to me, you know, never once did Larry say anything negative about you. Always positive. And that, that always warms my heart. Has getting through those low periods in your marriage help you get through other low periods in your life? Absolutely. My mother-in-law always says, you know, it could be worse. So the worst thing that ever happened to me was losing Larry. Everything else kind of is not as as bad. And I always say this is not as bad as losing the one you love. Um, that helps. That helps a lot. And it's just the bigger perspective. Also, getting back to the meditation thing is, you know, we're here to learn lessons. We're here to evolve. Got to work on the things that we need to work on. That's why we're here. You started studying anthropology in college and dropped out after your first two years to travel and physically experience the world and cultures you were reading about in textbooks. After all your travels, you think that happiness is not only a feeling but also an attitude. You have seen people living in poverty but willing and happy to share their homes and food. You believe that the happiness attitude comes out of gratitude. How has your travels and experiences changed the way you show and practice gratitude? I would say that I always feel grateful. Part of it is because I'm privileged in our culture, very privileged. And, you know, I'm able to travel. I'm able to do the things that I do. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't forget that. Even as I'm sitting here talking to you, looking out at this gorgeous lake, drinking my coffee in my favorite chair, in my favorite cup, which is Larry's cup. I'm just so grateful to be in a beautiful place, to have the family and the friends that I have. You know, I think traveling, yes, made me grateful for having, you know, toilets that flush and food in the refrigerator. I remember traveling in Mexico, going up to Huautla in the 60s, and having this family 
tell us, please come in out of the rain and, you know, continue your, your hike up the mountain till the rain stops or till wow. tomorrow and um, come stay at our house and we'll find you food. Uh, they did go out and find us crickets that they roasted inside <laughs> and we ate them. Yeah. I mean, these people were so proud of their house that they yeah. had a house wow. to let us stay and that they could find the crickets in the rain. Yeah, I mean, it really, the travel experiences really makes you less ethnocentric for sure. And you know, the other thing about gratitude is the compassion piece, is feeling compassion for others. And I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think that in the brain, they might be in the same place, compassion and gratitude, because it reminds me of an NPR interview I heard this researcher, Daniel Coleman, at least reporting on a study done with master meditators from Nepal and from India. So the study looked at the brains of these master meditators and saw that when they looked at people who didn't meditate, there were times that there were these gamma waves, which I'm not sure how they relate to endorphins, but they're different. That people, when they had a pleasurable experience, would have these gamma waves, but they would last maybe a split second, a half a second, very small uh, duration of these gamma waves. When they looked at the master meditator mind, these gamma waves were present all the time. What was interesting to me in this interview is they also looked at people in AA and people who not necessarily meditate, who don't necessarily meditate. Maybe they even looked at people who didn't meditate, but they saw that they had the same waves of compassion and the, the parts of their brain were much larger than people who weren't in AA. And the theory was that in AA, it's a spiritual program. People do service. It's all about service, helping others, that they have the same capacity for compassion as these master meditators. I always thought that was pretty cool. And, and I think that, you know, even though my meditations may not be perfect and they may not be as regular as I would like them, I think that it has changed my brain. And I think it's because I feel connected to people that I seem to attract that. I seem to attract connectedness in all aspects. I do think semantics and the way you think and, and what, I mean, the way you talk to yourself affects how you feel. I, I'm all about gratitude and compassion. I think that that's key to happiness. I really do. You successfully had a baby as a vegetarian in the 70s. And from all the reading you did during your pregnancy about nutrition, you decided to shift your career towards nutrition. What were you doing for work before you made the shift? And what exactly called you to nutrition? How did you know that this was the right move for your career? Well, there was no shift because I didn't have a career. Um, <laughs> I had just a lot, lot of odd jobs, everything from being a maid in Aspen to being a wholesale tropical fish jobber wow. in, in Miami. You know, I just did odd jobs, whatever I could get to sustain us. So I chose nutrition because... At that time, I was beginning my life as a single parent before I met Larry or before I got with Larry, and I needed to, to go back to school. I was moving back to Michigan from Florida, and I needed to go back to school, and I had just successfully completed a pregnancy, being a vegetarian, and I had read a lot about it and liked it, and I thought, okay, well, let me do this. I had no idea how scientific it was and how much chemistry and math, and boy, I really struggled, but I did. I got through it. I got through it, and it was, a, it was a good move. It was a really good move. You have seen great success in your professional life. You earned a master's degree. You were awarded a fellowship at John Hopkins. You became an expert in eating disorders, taught and developed courses at Central Michigan University and Michigan State University. 
And you also started a successful private practice helping people with eating disorders. How has all this outward success fulfilled you inwardly as well? Oh, well, very much so. I, um, I love what I do. Didn't start out being in the field of eating disorders. I started out as a pediatric nutritionist, and that was the field I was trained in. After the birth of my second daughter, I didn't want to work full time anymore because now I had two kids. So I took a part-time job at Michigan State in their health services. I was job sharing at the time, and we started out by doing some weight loss groups. What we got instead of people who needed to lose weight were all these young women who were extremely thin wanting to lose more weight. So I quickly had to read up on eating disorders and get trained. And at that time, in the early 80s, there was not a lot of literature in the nutrition field. So I had to learn from social work, psychologists, psychiatry, conferences, and things like that to learn about it. But I found that in doing the eating disorder work, as opposed to the traditional dietetics, I was much more fulfilled because it was much more psychological. And I could use a lot of what I've learned with mindfulness and meditation with this group of people. Yeah, I really, I do love what I do. And even though I'm only doing it two days a week, I do look forward to it. Sometimes before I see my patients, I'll kind of do a little meditation to kind of ask the consciousness around me to help me ask the right questions or say the right things to help my clients. So the meditation is, is part of my life. You love what you do, like you said, and you look forward to the days when you see your clients. You've been doing this for quite some time. How do you maintain the joy for the job and continue to show up and love what you do? Well, like I said, I've only, I only do it two days a week. So I think working with eating disorders in general could be very difficult. I try to connect with other professionals, both therapists and nutritionists, to help with the, the tough clients. And in that connectedness with other people in my field, I don't feel isolated. I feel like I'm part of a community, and I think that helps to not have that burned out feeling. And again, I think mostly it's because it's two days a week as opposed to five. Your career in nutrition has seen many different evolutions, speaker, teacher, therapist, and more. Did you chase new opportunities, or did they simply show up? And how did you have the courage to make such brave shifts? You know, I was lucky. I was one of the very few private practice nutritionists in the area that I was practicing. So I didn't really have to do a lot of marketing. I got most of my referrals from therapists, physicians who knew me. You know, I think I did one marketing blitz where I went to all the doctors in the area and gave them these little flyers about me or something. And many of them kept them for 20 years and would still call. I didn't have to really uh, look or put myself out there. Um, I was lucky that way. Didn't really have to make too many shifts. In fact, I think I was doing too much. I had lots of little part-time jobs, lots of little things I was doing, lots of presentations, lots of things. You know, again, that nervous wreck kind of a thing. As I got older and my kids got older, and now that I'm semi-retired, what I find is it's easier for me to say no to a lot of things and just keep it small, keep it where I like it, and not be flitting around doing so many things. I did that for a long time. I didn't even realize how exhausting it was. You told me that you attribute some of your success to your own personal therapy and learning about yourself and your shortcomings. In what ways have these insights about yourself helped your career? Well, mostly it helped to get along with people, to understand people, to have compassion, to have gratitude. 
the insights that I got through therapy and traveling and seeing the world, definitely it helped me to get along with people, I would say, and to be intuitive in terms of what they need. And and being real, my shortcomings, yeah, they're they are real. And understanding that other people have them too. You know, this idea that I think every every true religion tries to take credit for this. The saying that is, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. And I think that's really true. And I, I kind of remember that when I'm listening to my clients tell their story. And it helps me to kind of feel what they need to hear from me and have compassion for them because some, some of these issues are really tough. You find your daily joy in many aspects of your life, helping your clients achieve a better lifestyle, being a mother, being a grandmother, being a friend, and sharing in a special kind of connectedness with your group, running half marathons, dancing, and even just having a cup of coffee in the morning looking out over your lake. You have so much going on in your life. How do you balance all these wonderful gifts without feeling burnt out or exhausted? And what type of perspective do you have to remember these gifts are not obligations? That's a, that's a really good question. This balance idea, I actually, again, it's semantics, but I got this idea from one of Molly's posts, and it really resonated for me, and it really has helped me. And the post had something to do with the difference between a busy life and a full life. And once I started saying that my life is full as opposed to busy, it really helped me kind of slow down and enjoy the fullness of all of this stuff. Dancing is probably the thing that gives me the most immediate happiness. <laughs> I just put on some Motown and I start dancing myself in my house and I feel joyful. Yeah, so this idea of um, all these things that you mentioned, it sounds like, oh my God, I never sit still. Uh, but I do, I try to balance it with the meditation, with slowing down, with saying no to things. And I've gotten better about that in the last, few months, actually, since I read that post by Molly, uh, that has really helped me a lot. Thank you, Molly. Well, we are going to move on to the silly but equally important questions. Okay. Yeah, these are real, real zingers. Okay. These are the deep ones. These are the deep questions. Who would you rather have a cup of coffee with, Bob Dylan or Mick Jagger? Oh, my goodness. Boy, that's tough. I, I would, I think the Mick Jagger one would be more fun for sure, but the Bob Dylan, uh, I would just be in awe. I probably couldn't talk. I mean, he's, he's probably one of my favorite poets. I'll call him a poet. Love his, love his music. Uh, so I guess I would say Bob Dylan. Yeah, I would say Bob Dylan. I, there's lots of questions I have about his songs. Mm. If animals could talk. What animal would you want to have a conversation with? With your dog, Watson. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a really fun conversation. That would be a really fun conversation. <laughs> right. He just looks so wise. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who was your childhood celebrity crush? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Oh, and really? believe it or not, I really was. Because, um, well, I don't, I don't want to say why, but I will say that my first celebrity crush was on Bobby Rydell. Oh, who, I don't even know who that is. Okay, you got to look up his music. I can't even think of what the music was, but I just know that I had his pictures up on my inside of my closet. Oh, wow. Inside <laughs> of my closet door. I don't even remember what the songs were. I think you might have had more than one hit, but Bobby Rydell, I think after I hang up with you, I'm going to 
I'm going to ask Alexa to play something by Bobby Rydell. Nice. But <laughs> that was my first crush. And then, of course, later, the Beatles. But my first right. crush was Rydell. <laughs> oh, that's great. Esther, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to share about happiness? For me, it's connecting with that bigger energy, that consciousness that brings me this peace, this joy, and, and happiness. I mean, that's really what it is, to be able to feel it and to be connected with it. Well, Esther, thank you so much for joining me today. I always love talking to you, and I feel so lucky to have you as my mother-in-law. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and I feel lucky to have you as my son-in-law. Well, your commitment to knowing yourself and your constant positive attitude is truly amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I always love talking with Esther. She has led such an amazing and interesting life. One thing that always has been constant in her life is her meditation practice and her devotion to following her joy. Do you have a meditation practice? Take time today to notice the language you're using around difficult situations. How can you shift your self-talk to empower you rather than tear you down? What brings you immediate joy? Go do that right now. Did you know we have a Facebook group? Search for a Happy Hunters podcast discussion group on Facebook to share your thoughts, experiences, connect with others, inspire, and empower. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you got as much out of this episode as we did. We are a brand new podcast and could use your help so others can find the show. Please subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Tune in for new episodes every single Tuesday. Find us on Instagram at Molly and Jonathan and follow our RV adventures on YouTube at Our Tiny Mess. If you know a happy someone who we should interview, head to iconoclasticwellness.com slash happy hunters to nominate them or yourself. You can also support this show by supporting our sponsors. We'll see you next week. Thank you.